Hello, everybody. Welcome again to episode two of Sports Cards Live. I'm super excited today. I've got, as you all know, we've been talking about it for a few days now. I've got Carvin Chung, who is currently at GTS and has a, an immense history in the hobby. Super, super honored to have him agree to join us here today and uh, come have a discussion. We're just going to go back and forth, talk about things that are relevant to the hobby and to cards and to what we all, what we all love. Um, I, I want to thank everybody who has joined the Facebook uh, group and who subscribed to the YouTube channel. Please do subscribe. It'll, it really does help. Once we get to 100 subscribers there, we get our own URL, which I'm really excited about. Um, and uh, listen, like this is great. This is a great opportunity for everybody to soak in some information and meet some of the people behind the scenes. So I'm going to bring Carbon in right now. And thanks, everybody, for coming in. This is this is really awesome. Hello, everyone. How's it going? Yes. Um, I'm at my quarantine haircut now, so you look great. You look great. Thanks for thanks for joining, Carvin. Really appreciate having you. And um, we have been preparing a little bit for this, everyone. So we do have a few things planned. But uh, I do want to again just thanks, Carvin, for making the time to speak to myself uh, and to have this audience here with us. We're really happy to have you and everyone else that's watching. Um, so let's get into it, man. Uh, you've been in the hobby for a long time, basically your whole life. And I think, uh, you know, as someone who worked at, a few, at Upper Deck and Panini and now GTS, you come with a lot of experience and you have a lot of hobby knowledge and a lot of behind the scenes stuff that a lot of people would probably be curious to learn. Um, no trade secrets, nothing like that. I just mean the cool stuff that only someone like you would, would be able to know. So let's dive in. Let's let's start with you. Um, really uh, tell us a bit about yourself and uh, and kind of I, I really want you to, to focus on what was your first memory of hockey cards? And what, what took you from, you know, a child up until when you got your first job um, in the card industry? Why don't you take it away with that? Sure. Well, being Canadian, um, you know, I grew up, uh, my first experience, was, I grew up in, in the cold. And my first experience was, uh, I think I went outside for recess and there was masses of kids over there. And I didn't understand why. So um, lo and behold, someone said, yell out scrambles. And all I see is a bunch of cards in the air. And. You're diving through the ice and through the puddles and getting half-ripped cards, and that was basically my first experience of uh, hockey cards. You know, it would be probably at that time it was in the '70s, so I probably got like '71, '72 cards, '73, '74. I remember the green border, like action photos and all that. Uh, so, and then after that, you you compile a, a bunch of cards and you play those, you know, card games. Like you shoot them called farsies or touchies or backsies or whatever hit backsies i can't remember all of them yeah. but knocking around these all those type of games and then um after that um my dad actually brought them back home um and he used to smoke at that time and i didn't like him smoking but that was the one time i was like oh i'm going out for cigarettes like well perfect i'm getting a couple of packs of trading cards or hockey cards back then so opg was a game uh back then so right okay That's so great. So, so that was your your childhood sort of experience with cards as a, as a little guy. Right. Why don't you us through to um, when you first got into the card at, from a business angle? What was your sort of first business experience with cards of, of any sport? So as as I grow grew you know older, I think about twelve or thirteen, you get shamed into collecting cards and you kind of give up on cards at that time. So, but for for a period of time, I still was an entrepreneur and I was looking at cards and saying, hey, you can make money on trading cards. I know at one time people go back and collect it. So, but the game changer was Upper Deck, 89 Upper Deck. And I saw the double photos, photos in the front, back, the holograms, the foil packs, and instead of a wax pack. 
and I had to go out and buy some. And at the time in Canada, I had to go to a comic store. Uh, this is my last year in university, so uh, University of Toronto. I walk all the way down to Silver Snail, which is a, quite a bit of a walk, and it was like six dollars Canadian a pack, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, you're paying like four dollars US. And lo and behold, I started getting into cards again. And I said, man, these cards are not, you know, cardboard looking. They're more white um, uh, in terms of pristine color. And then, of course, the iconic Ken Griffey Jr. card. Um, and then I managed to went somewhere, I think, in Virginia and went to a Walmart and found like a, like just boxes and bond boxes. And then I, all of a sudden I said, you know what, I'm going to start a business now. So I got into the business, flea market stores, um, and then afterwards went to work for uh, the Canadian distributor at the time, Grosner Distribution, and um, worked there for two years. Uh, obviously provided feedback for Upper Deck at the time. And then when the time came where I was available, Upper Deck called and gave me an opportunity to, to work down there. Right on. So you you took that job at Upper Deck uh, after Grosner. And I want to I wanna understand, I want the viewers to really have an understanding of sort of what, what was your perspective on the state of the hobby that at that time what where was the hobby at then and and what did you sort of see as something you could do to make the hobby better throughout your tenure at upper deck and then even from there going to what your job was and what you got to work on okay so um at the time you know i got hired as a product manager uh, and it was in 2001 in june of 2001 uh, obviously the the darling of all the sports was baseball uh, currently at that time i think the basketball manager, product manager, was going into international. Uh, you may know him. His, his name was Jamie Kiss Kiss, and then Joe Fallon was the hockey brand um, product manager. He got elevated to being my boss, who was the director of product development. So there was an opportunity for basketball and hockey. So that's the role that I filled uh, at the time when all this product came out. If you recall, back in '97, '98, '98, '99, it was all about the the memorabilia. Now the game worn memorabilia. Uh, just game worn, like, you know, one in 2,500 packs down to one in 288 packs. I'm listing it like, you know, multiple cases down to one case. And then eventually it got to the box level. And then now autographs for the game changer come down, coming down the pipeline in 2000, 2001. So I think that was, that was the beginning of the autographs slash memorabilia. But then also it was all starting the beginning of the takeaway of the, you know, technology inserts. So like in Flair had the precious metal gems, it had the essential credentials. If I, you guys don't know these products to say so, and like we can explain a little bit about it. Um, so all the all those technology um, kind of went away because the cost of that was really expensive, and where you have to offset it versus the 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 game used memorabilia and the autographs. Sure. So. So what were some of the kind of the first products that you got to work at? Like, for example, when you started at Upper Deck, was your, were you into, were you assigned to hockey? Were you assigned to basketball? What, what sport were you assigned to first? And what were the first products that you actually worked on and helped to develop? Okay, so the, the two sports that I inherited at the time was basketball and hockey. So one of the products uh, in hockey, I kind of spearheaded the, the product coming back. It was kind of decision, do we want to keep it? there was a lot of feedback that was kind of negative was SP game used. So the first year of SP game use was 2000, 2001. And I, I worked on 2001, 2002. Uh, but anyway, I remember that on SP game use, it was a lot more like numbered dual jersey, single jersey, autographed jerseys, patches were, were kind of the beginning of a lot more patches versus 
the patches in just unique game jersey, but patch edition, like the patch parallel. So you saw a lot more patches. You saw triple triple jerseys, I believe, and quad jerseys and dual sign jerseys and patches. So it was a, it was a basically when you look at the sell sheet, it was like a four pages of just all the different numbering and and insert names. Uh, the first product that I built for basketball was a product that was similar to called Sweet Spot Baseball, where it was an autograph on a piece of leather with the stitching. Uh, unfortunately, basketball doesn't have that. Not that we didn't introduce it later. Uh, we did. But uh, in this one, it was called Sweet Shot. And there was an autograph on um, orange dimpled paper to kind of look like a, a basketball leather. And there was some unique uniqueness to it, like one of the inserts was called Sweet Shot, I believe, memorabilia, where I had a piece of the net and a ball, um, just to kind of, you know, do a swish type type effect, right? Yeah. Um, but actually, prior to Sweet Shot, it was the year that Jordan was coming back. It's kind of ironic they were talking about that because we all know that tomorrow is the last dance, the, the, the first episode. Um, so he was coming back as a wizard, and there was a bonus pack that was going across all the products. Since I believe basketball just went through um, a work stoppage, so what happened was that, uh, or it didn't do well the year before, we were adding that bonus pack. And if you recall, it was a picture, I believe, of Michael in a uh, Washington Wizards uniform. It was called MJ's Back. But the initial name that I had, and I kind of got shot down by the by the product development team, so I just want to call it Air. You know, just, just a good marketing scheme just to get some air with your, with your box of cards, which would have been a bonus pack with Jordan. A bonus, a bonus pack called Air. Yeah. So yeah, just like, get some Air with your boxes, right? That's so cool. an MJ pack, yeah. So. Okay, that's all. That's uh. So so that was that kind of covers a bit a bit about what you uh, created there at the beginning. Why don't you tell us now? I mean, we've been talking and publicizing this uh, this discussion for a while now, and I've you know made mention that you were instrumental in inventing the cup and exquisite. Why don't you talk a bit about? what your what your thoughts were and why you saw a need for products like that at those price points with that particular type of content and how did you sort of come up with and how were you able to build value at that price point for the for the collectors okay well here's a question for for anybody does anybody remember i mean i don't think there are a lot of people watching it's like 10 people do, but does anybody remember who was which product had the first rpa first ever rpa a rookie patch auto. I'll give you guys like a minute and then I'll give you the answer. Okay. Okay, so, so it's not basketball or hockey that had it. Which was it? Why don't you let's speed through the minute and which one was it? Okay, it was it was SP Authentic, Christopher West, oh, right? Yeah, there we go. Chris West, yes, right. Awesome. It was uh, it was 2001 SP Authentic football. Yeah, that's right, Greg. Uh, it was the there was three patched autos only, and one of them was Michael Vick. The big one was Michael Vick at the time. The Daniel Thompson, I believe, had just the auto, and then I believe Breeze had the patch only, or something like that was mixed up. But um, it was it was just the the three guys that had patch auto rookie patch autos. So at the time when we were building 2001 and 2002 SP Authentic basketball. I got heavy pressure to include RPAs as you know the selling point, and I resisted. I had you know I was I was like no we're not gonna do I don't want to put it in that, namely because SP Authentic was a four ninety nine product, so something of this nature of an RPA could be in a much more grander scheme of things like in something more out there. 
So at the time, up, Upper Deck had Ultimate Collection as its highest price point. So even if you're going to do something, you would do it in Ultimate Collection. But also at the time, Ultimate Collection sold really well. SP Authentic sold really well. So we didn't really, I thought that you didn't really need to change it up too much. So thus, come 0304, when it was LeBron rookie year, I said, well, I do see people breaking Ultimate Collection. And I see people just, you know, a jersey card, they didn't care. They really was after that one autograph or if it was a nice patch card. So I said, well, why not just combine everything and put the price point at $500 and give them an autograph patch rookie. This is now we're gonna, where we're gonna introduce the first ever basketball autograph patch rookies. Now, when I say that, um, it could be a variation of a rookie that has a patch, but that's not a true rookie card. These ones were the true rookie cards that first ever existed in Exquisite. So right. that's, that's where the initial thought was behind it. Now I had other thoughts of creating a $2,000 box versus a $500 box. Um, but at that point, it was including some some sort of crystallized player cards, and also having a game used or game worn or game used uh, jersey or a UDA item. Uh, just lo and behold, I mean, I couldn't get like 500 game used Jordans to put in a product, so um, that's why we went away from that. Was let me ask you this: Was uh, was Exquisite the first choice for you uh, to name the product? I, you say you mentioned with Air that you got shot down for that. Right. Was it your choice or, or not? No, it wasn't. And actually, I cringed when I created the exquisite name. Um, first ever name um, was actually, I mean, if you guys can take a guess, it actually came out later, about three or four years later, as, a, as another product with that name. But you guys can try to guess uh, which, which name it was. I know right. Greg also, so I don't know if Greg this should be the one answering it. So Okay, Greg, Greg won't take a guess, but if anyone else wants to take some guesses, um, while you're thinking about that, I just want to mention to everyone who's watching, um, we will be going to more questions uh, in a little bit of time here uh, once we kind of get through the initial discussion. But if you want your, when, when the comments come in, I can actually put your question on the screen so that Carbon and I can remember and see what we're, what he's talking about. And also people who are viewing can see the topic uh, that we're actually discussing. So to get your name up there, I need you to go to StreamYard. Let me put this up there. I need you to go to StreamYard.com slash Facebook, and you just click on that big blue button, and that will allow StreamYard, which is the service we're using to have both of us on the screen right now, it'll allow them to see your name. That's it. It's all good. So I'd appreciate if you do that. That way, I know who we're talking about. If I happen to know you, it just makes it that much uh, more kind of... Uh, comfortable here for the discussion. So please go ahead and do that stream. I'll put it up there again. Sorry, streamyard.com slash Facebook, the big blue button. Let's go see if we've got any sort of uh, guesses here for, so one, uh, so here we have this, uh, this, per, uh, no, sorry, Brett, wrong comment. It was, uh, here we go. Masterpiece carbon. Was it masterpiece? It wasn't masterpiece. Masterpiece was the first product um, that was named masterpiece. That was, it was the one with the paintings. So because of the painting masterpieces, well, that's why. Was it, we have another guess of chronology. No, chronology is a timeline, so it wouldn't fit well with Exquisite. Legacy. The question was, what was the original name of Exquisite? Because it's actually a name that I cringe when I first developed that name. We have a guess of Legacy. Was that the one? No, it's not Legacy. Our buddy Davey asks, was it UD Black? It is UD Black. It is UD Black. UD Black. Davey uh, is the winner of the uh, first uh, the first live question. So, so the, just to give you some insight on why I picked uh, UD Black. Number one, I think everyone knows I'm Asian, so or I'm Chinese. Um, so if you ever go to a Chinese party, everyone's wearing black. Um, 
Number two, I'm, I am overweight, so black kind of thins me out a little bit, so I always like the color of black, or I always wore black for that reason. Um, but the, the, one of the main reasons is, you know, just going back some history, um, and sorry that I keep on going about this, like talking about this, all these ideas, was back in the 90s, uh, one of the most popular credit cards out there, if you were a, a guy that, you know, plays the field, was the Platinum card, uh, American Express Platinum card. And what happened was that that platinum card used to be really expensive and it's really elusive to get. Um, however, American Express decided to cash in on that platinum card and offer that to everyone with a certain um, annual fee. I think it was like $3,000 or $2,000 and everybody that wanted to be someone got it. So the platinum card didn't have that allure anymore. Uh, back in 2002, American Express came out with something known as what they call now the Black Centurion card. So the Black Centurion card is like you had to spend over a million dollars on the American Express or you were a, a CEO of a company or you know some celebrity that got it. So that's why I went with the color UD Black as the name. Um, and why, why wasn't that the eventual name of the product? Well, I had all kinds of marketing ideas about it and we can talk more about Exquisite another time. Uh, the We had a meeting with the sales meeting and one of the people brought up the uh, higher ups kind of said, well, you can't, we can't call it black. I go, why not? It's a great color, you know, anything prestigious, anything like you look at it, um, brands and all that are using the color black when it's high end. And he goes, because the NBA is. And I said, okay, well, <laughs> I don't, I don't see the connection, like in terms of like it being uh, not tasteful, but either way, I mean, so I had to go back to the drawing board. I had to think a few days and I did not really like the exquisite name to be honest. It was just, uh, I thought it, it deals more with jewelry and something, you know, not as masculine as sports cards. So that's part of the reason. But we went with it. And obviously now I, I think I kind of like the name. You do. Hey? That's good. I, I do too. I think it's a great name. So, you know, that, that that's interesting for the history of the name behind Exquisite. I think it's really cool. Like this is stuff that you wouldn't, we wouldn't know unless we were here talking to you that Exquisite was almost not called Exquisite. It was almost called UD Black if you would have had your way. Um, and, you know, it's kind of nice. UD Black became a great brand in itself. Lots of great content. And Exquisite is, has gone on to become um, Exquisite. A couple of years later, after the introduction of Exquisite in 0304, we, in the hockey community, we saw the first super, super priced brand, uh, the Cup. What kind of, why did it take why did it take two years to get from having exquisite in basketball to also having a matching product uh, in hockey? And why wasn't it also called um, exquisite hockey versus the cup hockey? Okay, so so actually there was a sabbat I had a sabbatical in between from 2001, 2002, I was handling both sports. 2002, 2003, we restructured the team and I was handling basketball only. Uh, only until 2004 and five, now, three and four, I think there was a high-end product on hockey called Premier at the time. Yeah. Right, there was Premier. Because Ultimate was taken by in the game, and they didn't want to have confusion, so it was called Premier at the time. Um, so what happened was that at that time, we also knew that going into 0405, there could be a lockout. There was all the talk about it at that time, and, and potentially there could be a whole season of no play at all. So there was no way of doing exquisite and you know Greg's here and Greg can even comment in the, in the section like we didn't even know at the time when 0304 exquisite when it came out there was a lot of people just not very happy about the product because they felt that it was too expensive 
Uh, we actually, I think Greg was even there at that meeting. Uh, we had a meeting in New Jersey and I got beat up crazily, crazily beat up by five stores saying that's the stupidest, the worst idea in the world. I don't even know how you come up with this crap, you know, that type of thing. And then I said, I, I gave him the solicitation. He saw it. He said, yeah, it looks okay, but I don't trust you guys. So, and those, those five people, if you bring them into a room today, they'll tell you, yeah, we did say that, you know, yeah. right. So, so we got beat up completely. Um, in football, we finally brought out the next year. So the next year for hockey, when I was finally back on it, it was a lockout. So 0506 being a double rookie crop, we all know about Sid the Kid through his, you know, teens and all that, how great of a hockey player he was. We, we kind of knew how much of an enigma Ovechkin was. It was the perfect time to bring it in. Now, the reason why we didn't call it exquisite is for, you can say my own reasons that because I'm Canadian and I want to maintain that price point. I didn't, I wanted to maintain a $500 SRP Canadian versus the $500 US SRP. Um, so to give it a break and also, you know, at the time a Jordan autograph goes for, you know, seven, 800, not, not 40,000 now, like today, but seven, 800 and a Gretzky autograph only goes for 150. So you didn't have the hits and we would never know that Crosby would even deliver the same type of pricing that LeBron did when first hit. We would never expect it that, right? So the hits weren't the same. Like basketball has its big hits with its big players, maybe the top 10 players. Uh, hockey, their top 10 players are not even close to that. That's a third of the price. So that's why we didn't feel it was it was a, a, good, a good fit. Now the name itself, the cup was something that we actually talked to the leagues about that and saying, you know, the cup is the grail, right? The Stanley Cup. So we said, that's the name we got to use. Um, and so exquisite was never part of the equation because the other factor is that once you call exquisite, there's going to be pressure from everyone to raise the price to $500 SRP US, which so I was really trying to protect the Canadian consumers. But if you look at the structure of the set, the name of the inserts and all that, it's basically a lot of Americans were calling exquisite light for hockey. Yeah. Exquisite hockey, they were calling it. I remember that back uh, at the beginning, about 15 years ago now. Yeah. You know, people, they, they'd say what they didn't know what the cup was. They just figured because they could tell the box was the same shape. It had the same weight. It was the same type of product. They figured it was uh, it was just exquisite hockey, which basically it was. Um, so, uh, you know, you've mentioned Greg quite a bit, and I see Greg's making some comments. Uh, just so other people know, who, who who's Greg? Uh, just in, in a couple in a. So seconds. Greg right now is the director of product development. Are, are you a VP, Greg? I'm not sure. Uh, one of the one of the titles uh, of Leaf Trading Cards, but um, he worked for Upper Deck, I believe, starting in about 2004, late four 2005. He started there, um, and he worked till after I left the company. I think till about 2012 at Upper Deck. Um, he used to have a store as well. So I kind of, you know, have kind of some common theme with Greg. He used to own a store in Chatsworth and he left the store to go work for Upper Deck. And actually when I met Greg the first few times, we had focus groups and all that. And it was great providing feedback. Um, so he, it was, it was, that's right. Yeah. 2003. So he was great at providing feedback, whether negative or positive, he, he provided great feedback. And I, I felt that, and he also opened a lot of products. So as much as, you know, I, we talk about, you know, learning my craft. I spent a lot in tuition by opening products and being, you know, a card guy and understanding hits and how to get back your money on eBay or flipping cards and all that to, to have that knowledge base before going into work for Upper Deck. Right. We kind of we kind of skipped by actually a part of your history now that I, I know, I'm thinking of it. 
you mentioned paying your dues along the way. So you actually were a collector, you and you were a collector of, of, of high-end products at the time in, in the 90s and that. Didn't you have a shop in, and don't your parents perhaps still have a shop in uh, in, in Toronto? Yeah, we, we had a shop in Mississauga. So I had a flea, a flea market and then it became a, a shop. Um, and we were doing fairly well at the shop, but when the opportunity came to move to California and also work for Upper Deck, I mean, Upper Deck was the, was the company that changed my view on trading cards or got me back into trading cards. Now, a lot of people don't know, I'm a, I'm a Maple Leafs fan, I'm a, I'm a Raptors, I'm all Toronto fan, but before you know, the Blue Jays, before the Raptors, um, and then NFL, I'm, I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. So that's, but that's outside the norm. I was a Dodgers fan before the Blue Jays. I was a Lakers fan, heavy Lakers fan. I loved, you know, Showtime Lakers with magic. So, and, you know, Hollywood, Disneyland, as a kid, I always wanted to go to California. So when the opportunity opened up for me to move down there, I just couldn't resist. I didn't want to look back on life and say, you know what? I regret not going. And I felt that I, I had it in me to be able to create great products for the, for the, for the marketplace. Well, I think I think uh, the proof is in the pudding on that one. I mean, you, you you know, in creating exquisite in the cup, I mean, these are these are iconic brands that everybody chases. They're they're the they're the brands that we strive to add into our collections. You know, you can you have the selection of twenty different rookie cards for all players for every year now, or even back then to, to today, and even more today. But those are the ones that's kind of they're the they're at the top of the pile, right? They're the they're the most important cards out there as far as a rookie card goes. Um, so. Very, very cool. Um, if anyone wants to ask some questions, we do need you to go to streamyard.com slash Facebook and click the big blue button, and then we can uh, ask more of your com your questions online. Um, and we'll, we'll put them up on the screen as well so everybody can see. So please go do that, and we'll get some more of those up there. So Carvin, um, I think we've pretty much covered off uh, your uh, I think we've covered off most of the topics regarding your time at Upper Deck. Anything else? I, I do want to move through and talk about sure. your time and, and how you transitioned from Upper Deck to Panini, because you did spend several years in Panini. Anything sure. else uh, to cover Upper Deck before we go on to there? And we will come back to questions afterwards, everybody who's watching live. So please uh, please do um, continue to watch and, and give us your questions after. Go to that. Uh, I'm going to put up the, the banner here again, where you need to go to uh, Click on that big blue button on streamyard.com slash Facebook. It will allow us to see your who you are when you're asking questions and put your name up on the screen. So please go do that. So let me just see here. Uh, Greg makes a nice comment here. Carbon was instrumental in getting info out to collectors. This wasn't common in those days from manufacturers. And you know what, Greg, that's a great point. I, I actually remember Carbon, you'll remember this. We had a we had a I think you, you referred to it still as the hobby insider meeting at the Sports Card Expo in Toronto. What year would that have been? 2000? About 2008 or 2007, seven or eight around then. Yeah, we did two, two, two years. Actually, you know what? The first year was actually 2006, uh, 2005, because I remember giving away the Expo giveaways to everyone that attended that meeting. So uh, that was the first one. And probably 2006 or seven after that, I think part of the reason why uh, it wasn't like the, always the same, it was always the same group of people. and Unfortunately, I think the focus groups afterwards, the same questions and the same beefs came up over and over again. And, you know, no matter what you do, sometimes some people are just are very purist in, in what they want. And I, I am the same way. 
Um, I see a question right there. I mean, we'll, we'll, go, we'll get to it later. We can talk about it, um, about game use versus uh, photo shoot. Um, but, you know, I, I also want to be purist, but there's also the other side of execution and also profitability. So there's, there's always other, other aspects of the business. Right. So, I, think, I, think, I think one of the things that a lot of people maybe don't understand is that when you're developing a product, it's, it's a year ahead of time. So when you're coming up with, and I know we've talked about this carbon, so I'll mention it because I know it's something a lot of people wonder, why are those, you know, we know in, in the cup, for example, the RPAs are out of 249 or in the early days, 199, and then a small handful of players were right. out, of, out of 99. And the question that a lot of people would always ask was, well, how did they decide to make this guy out of 99 when he's not even, you know, he's not as big of a star as these guys are today? Right. But you have to come up with those decisions well in advance. So, I, you know, and that this is um, this is my this is you what you've told me over the years. Can you speak right. to that at all? Sure. Um, so, typically we we pick three guys or six guys. Um, usually six is the number you have to go with because of um, NHLPA, MLBPA. It's called the Rule Six. So you ideally want to pick six guys. I know the first year cup we only had the three. It was uh, Ovechkin, Crosby, and Fanuve. Um, if you do two, it becomes it com becomes kind of a violation of the players' association agreements. So we just side on caution. We just want to do that at three. The worst case scenario, that then six. Um, and the reason why we did it was was really just to deliver an RPA in every box. Right. So so if you wanted if if we went all ninety nine, you wouldn't get an RPA in every box. And I think just having that RPA is is a lure. Like I'll I'll be honest. Like it's like opening any products. You want to chase the red color board cards or you want to chase an RPA. Well, as soon as you hit one and you see it's an RPA, I notice how everyone, they do a slow roll. They want to squeeze it and kind of tease themselves and hit it. Well, if every box you have that chance to hit an RPA of a of note, the $10,000, $20,000, $30,000 RPA these days, then you're happy to, to see that. But if you don't see it, you almost just want to throw the box on the ground. So you want to have that opportunity where you kind of have that slow roll in every box. And that's right. that's where I think Greg and I come on on board. We open a lot of products, you know. We we can we can get a red bordered you know card, and we're like, oh man, this is it. This could be it. You have that moment of you know, oh man, it's not, but at least I got one of these, right? So I had the chance in that box, and that's part of the reason why we chose the numbering to be that high on certain guys and other guys are low numbers. Um, and also, you can you can also add in the gold variation number to jersey number as part of the mix too to hit the one per box. I think these days we're seeing more and more rookies than we are seeing veterans. And part, probably primarily the reason is the cost of rookie autographs are a lot less than most of the veterans. Right. So, In terms of the deals that the, company, that the card companies have with the players. Right. 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 Fair enough. So here's a question. I don't know that this question I'm going to pop on the board. I don't know that you, you are you had the you were in the actual role to answer this question but take a stab at it anyway matthew's asking how did you determine the retail prices for each product or i guess the the better way to put it how did you determine the price point for each product so so in our business at that time i don't see that as often now it's called the srp suggested retail price um it's it's really just looking at the cost so we would you know and, and greg once again greg's there so you can even speak about it too uh, you would come up with a price and then we put all the costs into it so we would have a, a pricing model and you put all the cost and 
if it's a price for a product that has some history, like SP Authentic was $4.99. I know the price have changed recently, but at that time it was $4.99 SRP or Upper Deck was $2.99. You always want to keep that kind of consistent. So the one thing that was, that was kind of a joke was that despite all the inflation and everything else is going up, trading cards never go up in pricing. But what you do is that obviously there is cost associated, so you would have to tie it down, degrade some of the, or take out some of the content. Now the content doesn't have to be autographs or it doesn't have to be memorabilia. It could be a less foil. It could be a different stock of paper, uh, less thicker paper. You know, there's there's all kinds of ways you can save money in, in, in this business outside of just taking out the obvious content that we're talking about in terms of paper, um, memorabilia and autographs. So. I find it interesting that you say that. I know that you use the term there, saving money, but if I, knowing you the way I do, and I've, we've known each other for over 15 years now, right. um, and uh, we, we did have an experience together, which we'll get into a, at another time, but I, I do know that you're the kind of uh, brand manager that you tried to get as much value into the product as you could. So did you ever find that you were having conflict or any sort of um, pushback from the, the finance people at Upper Deck where you, know, you wanted to load up the product for collectors because you came from that background and were you ever, was there, was there a lot of pushback or were you able to, to your satisfaction, get enough product in, in, in the, uh, get enough value in the products to your, to where you were happy? Well, when we, when we do any planning, um, I, and I, I think I, I would say this about any business that you're doing, uh, manufacturing business, or even in your business that you handle, Jeremy, like there's, there's always, you got to be profitable or else you just shut the door and it wouldn't make sense to, to build products. So, what we had was that we already had a predetermined volume revenue and obviously you want to hit that revenue um, and there are times you fall short and then there was a, a predetermined margin that you have to hit so you you can say that hey i want to take 10 percent off the margin so if that's the case and you're you're making money for the whole entire year the next question is that well where are you going to get that margin back right, right. That's very simple. Also, we can't pay everyone's salary, or we can't pay the rent, or we can't pay our royalties, or we can't pay Gretzky or Jordan, right? So we, we have to find a balance where it makes sense that it's profitable, it, it pays the bills, pays the leagues, make the leagues happy, and, and then on top of that, make a product that the consumer likes and wants to go back and buy it again next year and build that brand equity. So mm -hmm. it's it's never, and this is the question that, you know, I guess Jeff was alluding to, and I'll, I'll, I can go through it right now. Um, so Ovechkin, Crosby, Koivu rookies, you know, we, we managed to get game use for those, for that product and we inserted them, but let's put it this way. People don't like single color patches. And if you look at a hockey Jersey, majority of your patches are going to be single color. So we use game used only. You're going to see a lot more single, you know, single color Jersey, uh, patches. Also on top of that, you only get so much yield on, on one game used jerseys. So for Ovechkin and Crosby out of 99, it made a lot of sense. So for example, I can give you an example of Henrik Lundqvist. He, his jerseys, okay, number one, the product was built back in September for next year. And, and I believe the cup came out in July or late June, the first few years. Yeah. Uh, so you had a nine month lead time, you would have to get the jersey game use, which means they played in November, late October, early November. And usually a player or a team is not gonna give up their first jerseys. If they're on a winning streak, they're not gonna even give up those jerseys because they're superstitious. So you're probably not gonna even get a jersey till about January. So in January, it takes 
acquiring the jerseys, getting them sent in, getting them cut, getting them inserted into the cards, which takes a process of about three months. So now we're into March. Then you guys send that out to wherever Enric is, and that there's usually at least a two month delay to get it back. So by having game used jerseys, and each jersey at the time about November was costing twenty thousand a piece. So to make a card out of two forty nine, you would need five jerseys. That's a hundred thousand dollars cost into a jersey for Enric Lundqvist. It's not even they won't even bring back the value, even despite Enric going for two three hundred dollars on an RPA. And you're gonna get single color jerseys, smaller swatches, and you might not even get it back in time. It would be a redemption. So that's part of the reason. Uh, Ovechkin, Crosby, a lot of times we had reps going out to visit them and spending all kinds of money just to get them done. Miko Koivu, I don't know the reason behind that one, why it was a game use. It could have been we had a deal with the Minnesota Wild at the time, um, and they they provided game use jerseys early in the time frame. Was the carbon, was the was it the same situation in basketball and exquisite? Uh, I'm not as familiar with basketball as I am with hockey. But like the the LeBron James RPA, which you know we've seen this year sales in excess. I've seen two sales that I'm familiar with: 190,000 USD and 245,000 USD. Are those game worn? Are those game worn patches? No, they're photo shoot. They're all those are all photo. I believe they're photo shoot. Yeah, um, and and it comes down to it. That's the other thing that we 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 always debate about having game used. I'm a purist too. When I first pull out my my first ever photo shoot jersey, it was a Fred Taylor card. From upper deck, from the photo shoot, and I was like, "Man, photo shoot!" And then when you go to the events, you're like, "Oh, they don't just wear one photo where it's one jersey where they're all taking photos. You're wearing multiple jerseys. Um, you kind of get, kind of, you know, the feeling is not the same about that card. But at the same time, you know, are people really paying that much more for a game used of a Sidney Crosby than a non-game used? I, I would, I would debate that's probably the same price because it's really about the rookie card. It's really about the quality of the autograph, the quality of the patch." And at, at the end, it's all aesthetics. If I like the look of the cards, I'm going to pay more for it. Right. Okay. We have a great question here from uh, from Brett Miles. When developing products, how do you find the balance between catering to collectors and hobbyists buying versus stores and shops buying? And how to, and how much do secondary sales factor in? So I guess the secondary market and that. Can you speak to that at all? Of course. I mean, secondary market is is really key. Like, for example. Now, I'm not talking about today, but at the time when Upper Deck came out with Young Guns, I mean, a Crosby Young Gun would sell for you know, $150 to $200 when it first came out. And you had Crosby cards, rookies out of 1,000 that sell for $40. So, and we know that there's a lot more than 1,000 Young Guns, right? It's just that the brand equity um, has that so that the people are chasing Young Guns year to year. Everyone's doing a set of Upper Deck 1 and Upper Deck 2, and then we have the the, the elite collectors that want to do a master set of everything, right? Just like, you know, some of those beauty game jersey cards where there's only six game jerseys and they go for $1,000 for a game jersey of a no-namer. Um, and and, that's, and that's, the, uh, that's the great thing about UD1 hockey is that it has that brand equity and everyone's chasing it. So obviously we have to look at secondary market values to determine how to, to cater to that. Um, and then, of course, the balance between catering to collectors, you know, we take feedback with a grain of salt. I'll, I'll be honest, because on one side, people will be, yeah, I'm for this. On the other side, people will say, no, I hate it. So you guys are fighting amongst each other anyways, the hobbyists, a lot of them, you know, and, and you know, it's like some people will say, hey, I want game use jerseys on everything. The other guys say, you know, I don't care. As long as the car looks nice, I'm happy with that. I want the better patch. So you, you have to create that. You have to find that balance within ourselves. It's our job to really take that feedback and how to improve the product. 
and if we were wrong or the collectors didn't get what they wanted or they got what they wanted and it wasn't didn't do well then it's up to us to improve it next time around sure. um, but but ideas like exquisite or cup was it was not even any feedback from the collectors we just also had to go on our hunch and build that product and hope that it would catch on and sell through and all that well there was still was some marketing you know there was it was I, it was strategic right i mean i didn't do the rpa for exquisite in a yao ming year i did it for the lebron year you knew that kicking it off in LeBron year, it's going to set the trend going. It's, it's going to be a dynamite product as business LeBron. Same thing with why did Cup come out with Crosby? You knew that Crosby was going to sell it. And because of that, it builds brand equity, it builds excitement for next year. However, the problem is that when a product like that comes out, everything else, you kind of feel like, oh, I don't I'm waiting for the Cup again. So you have a lot of people that's all they want is exquisite and Cup. And that's up to us to balance the other products to make sure that we have key hits and the other ones to make sure that people want to hit other products. Right. So let's uh, let's just take a second, switch to basketball for a second. I want to because you bring up LeBron, the and we were talking about this the other day, you and I, and I think this would be interesting for people who uh, are familiar with the basketball um, area of cards as well as hockey guys too. But what was the? There's the dual local man. The car you mentioned to me that they were. It wasn't autographed the first year. Can you speak to that and and uh, just kind of explain what the situation, what the actual reality is, and what you were thinking at the time? And because I do believe that one of those cards changed hands earlier this year for close to seven figures. Can you speak to that particular card and sure. um, why it perhaps wasn't autographed in year one of Exquisite? So year one of Exquisite. I mean, prior to Exquisite, there was only one other set from Upper Deck that had Logo Mans, and it was an 0203. It was a regular Upper Deck set, and there's three Logo Mans. There was one with Kobe, one with Michael Jordan, and one, I believe, with Jay Williams. Because at that time, we changed out Jay Williams to be the exclusive spokesperson instead of Kevin Garnett. And I want to say they were all autographed as well, so it's an autographed Logo Man, right? But it was really, the design wasn't that great, I, I felt. Um, you know, nothing against our, our designers, you know, it's just, it was an upper deck set of tons of designs and it wasn't something, you know, it was the first ever Logo Man in, in the hobby. Before Exquisite came out, I believe Topps came out with a, with a Logo Man product too, uh, called Game Use, I, think, I believe it was, or something of that nature, Authentic Fabrics or Relic Edition or something like that, because they call everything Relics. Um, but the, the, the Exquisite, number one, I, don't, I didn't do an Exquisite Logo Man for the rookies. Now, if you, if you know the history of the process I've built, I don't put any of the Logo Men's or Shield rookie cards in Cup. That's actually reserved for Ultimate, so that Ultimate has that chase. Right. Um, ultimate Collection Hockey and Ultimate Collection Basketball. Uh, in fact, hold on a second here. So I rolled over my tool. All right, so here's a solicitation on Ultimate Collection Basketball 0304. So I just found this the other day, and it tells you the hits and everything inside it. Okay, uh, just trying to maneuver. It's actually backwards, guys. And if you see the, the triple jersey of AI, the Carmelo Anthony autograph rookie, and then all the way here, that's the only logo man of LeBron James that exists in the hobby of his rookie card. So it's a rookie card variation. There isn't one in, in an exquisite. His exquisite, he has a 101 black parallel without the autograph or the patch. He has um, a, one of, a one of one, let me see, I'm sorry, he has the autograph patch gold parallel number to his jersey number. That's all there is. 
And then there's a, a silver version of his rookie without any auto, any any memorabilia. That's number twenty five. So that's 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 how it was built. So the ultimate that came up in auction, uh, I believe, about last year at this time, sold for four hundred thousand. Right now, I think that car is probably worth about closer to eight hundred, nine hundred thousand. But going back to the dual logo man, uh, it was there was only three cards. It was LeBron, Kobe, Kobe. Uh, Kobe and Jordan, and then LeBron and Jordan. So LeBron Jordan, quoted by TMZ, sold for 900K uh, about a month and a half ago. And the reason why I didn't put an autograph on there, I just didn't feel was it was needed. There you go. Greg's even said not everything needs an auto. So and and I just didn't think it needed. I think the card would sell fine. I mean, in fact, the the comment that I made to Greg and everyone else, you know, everyone kind of said, you're an idiot for not putting an autograph. I go. So you tell me having two our autographs, the car would sell that much more? And they're like, no. I go, then wouldn't I be wasting two autographs on that card? And and the reason why I didn't put it on there is because we didn't know. Once again, we did not know if Exquisite was going to be a big hit or not. But if it was coming back, you got to leave something for the future that you can improve on that product, right? You also know that when you're coming back, it's not going to be a LeBron rookie year. So that already is have taken a lot of the stigma of, wow, I can hit a LeBron rookie. You don't have that in year two of Exquisite. So so we did bring back some of his rookie cards, and we can talk about that once again. Another time on Exquisite, what we did to do, to accommodate that. But realistically, that's why we did the autograph versions in second year two. We did the triple logo man from the two logo men to the triples. Um, so we added to it to make more hits later. Right. Okay, cool. Let's go back to uh, let's go back to hockey for a second now. Um, in 2008-2009, in the Cup, there was a subset or an insert set that debuted called draft boards. They were, uh, th I guess, you you guys took the draft boards from the NHL draft that would be up in the in the arena during the actual draft. You guys acquired those. You can talk a bit about that, and uh, and then you ended up inserting them into cards. And um, even for myself, I, I put that set together back in the day. How did you come up with that idea? And uh, how did you get the draft boards in the first place? And what are your thoughts? It's a lot of questions for you to remember, but what are your thoughts on the fact that now that they've gone digital, that those cards are never going to be seen again? Do you think that adds to their mystique and their value, or do you think it hurts them? Well, okay, let's, let's go back to the history of the draft board. So the NHL has always been great. I mean, all, all leagues are great, and they provide us with assets to, to utilize. And we had the draft board. They, they asked us, hey, we had the draft boards from 05, 06, 06, 07. But we had them year after year. And we didn't even know how, what to do with them, to be honest. Like, I I had no idea what I was going to do. And I was like, maybe we can put them in a giveaway as a whole entire draft board, like a whole Crosby, right? That'd be a huge giveaway. But my my biggest concern with that is that it always satisfies the one person. And, and the guy that gets the guy that's not even playing in the league, he's going to say, man, why did I get this guy? You know, like you get something good to them, it's a one on one, but you'll hear more complaints about it than than them saying, "Wow, that's a great card!" Right? That's something I'll never see in my lifetime. So um, it came, and we had like I believe three years of the draft boards in the office, and we're like, "What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do?" I said, "Well, you know what we're gonna do? We'll let's put them in the set." I'm like, what do you mean you put them in the set? Cut them up. They're like people aren't even know what a draft. That's a draft board. You're not gonna see the letters. I go, "Yeah, but you have black." You have the white, so guys in, with the white, well, you can sign in blue. The guys with the black, you can sign in silver paint pens. You know, it's kind of have that uniqueness if it's all black versus, so we made sure that we had all black. We had black and white and, and 
I think the white still always had a little bit of black. Maybe some of them was almost all white. You would know better than I do, Jeremy. So yeah, there there was all of those variations. I I do recall. I no longer uh, hold that set. I did move it up quite some time ago. But I'm curious because it came out in 08, but Crosby was drafted in 05. So yeah. there was a three year. Where were these physical draft boards? Where did they live from 05 to 08? Were they with the NHL or were they in the back in, in your office? Besides, it was, it was in one of our one of the hockey team's office. And okay. every year when we w went to look at it, it's like, hey, this is taking up room in my office. What are we going to do about this? Are we going to give them away? We're going to do this. So, so I said, well, let's just, we'll just cut them up. And we didn't anticipate that. But I was looking for content, too. I believe the year that we put them in, you know, once again, it was like, well, this is, in, the, in actual fact, this is actually Sidney Crosby event, event type one-on-one um, memorabilia that was from his draft. So it even predates him playing the game. So it's kind of cool. Um, and of course, we, we would have to wait till everybody that played that we can only feature them. Some of the players that didn't play, they still have a full draft board somewhere in Upper Deck probably. Okay. Interesting stuff that, that you guys, that Upper Deck can actually acquire these assets and just have them not quite knowing what you're going to do with them until you get creative and figure out what that'll be. That's that's pretty interesting stuff. So um, before we before we switch gears and go into your time at Panini, we will get there. But you know this this discussion just gets interesting. Let's here's a here's a kind of a nice question that uh, floats the the middle of that. Mikey asks, uh, do you still collect? Great question, Mike. Thanks for asking. I always do collect. Um, you know, mainly it's 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 always been. I, for some reason, I like Bowman, so I collect Bowman Blue Jay stuff. Uh, Raptors, I'll collect. But actually, as of late, um, I don't know if everyone knows that I had uh, I had a daughter about a year and a bit ago, and I was like, you know, I I should start collecting some of my legacy stuff. So I might start collecting some of my stuff, except for Exquisite and Cup, they're just so expensive now. So and of course, I don't want just any random players. I I of course want big stars. So if anyone has something that's burning a hole and they feel like they want to you know, offer it to me at, at a decent price. I'm a buyer. <laughs> so um, just to collect some of the stuff that I worked on in the past. So I, ideally any any cup, um, I have some cup cards, but exquisite 0304, I have nothing left. So I have none whatsoever. Actually, no, I, I lied. I do have some rookies like Mikael Pietrus and maybe a Troy Bell or something like that, but nothing of, of substance. So you're still in it. That, that's great to hear that you're and you, you started as a collector. You're still a collector. You're still in the industry, uh, you know, where you earn your living. So that's great to hear. A couple. I just want to say a couple. We have a couple questions. Uh, Barry's asked a, a two part question. Barry, your question is too long for me to put on the screen, so I'm not going to. It'll block out Carvin and I. But uh, but if you can, Barry, if you can just kind of make it a little bit shorter, I will. We will get to your questions. Uh, I like Brett's question here. Brett's saying, you know, the draft boards concept was really cool. Have there been similar concepts that didn't see the light of day? Any missed opportunities? Anything you can does that kind of ring any bells to you or uh, trigger any any memories for you, Carvin? Anything that we we could have seen that we didn't? I'm sure I'm sure there has been. Um, you know, we get offered all kinds of stuff that we say we have no use for it. I think some of the stuff that you know I even passed on Upper Deck has acquired. Uh, some of the stuff like um, the banners at the at the Winter Classic, um, we had we were offered those. Some of the logos that we, you know, the the sponsors, the logos that were offered. Now, just imagine that you're taking a big logo, you know, on a on a on the boards, or let's say maybe it could be one of the circles where they're coming on and all that. And it's like, well, how much yield are we going to get? We're going to buy it. We're going to stick it in a warehouse, and are we ever going to use it? 
at how thick the cards would be. We just don't know. And, and sometimes you're just like, you know what, rather than buying it, it'd be better off for the NHL to auction it off or offer it to a collector or work with fanatics. These days would be fanatics. Back then they had NHL.com do a lot of stuff. So, I mean, there was opportunities like, for example, Winter Classic, they, they offered the ice. So we could put them in a capsule and have, you know, game use ice right. idea. Um, you know, except for these, some of these things, you know, you, you wouldn't think about it. I remember opening inside Pinnacle, which was tw tins of cards, like the, the pack of cards inside a tin, and people would have to use a can opener and then cut their hands. So you don't want any liabilities too. So you gotta be cautious of that. So yeah. there's definitely all kinds of content and crazy content. I mean, I'm the one that decided to put uh, T-Rex teeth into champs, champs hockey, right? And dinosaur bones and all kinds of stuff like that. So, um, you know, there are opportunities like that, but there, you also got to decide on execution and the cost of it and will it be accepted? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting stuff. That's great. Um, here's a, I almost want to save this question for later, but I do have one right here with me. Unfortunately, it's not available. Bill's, Bill's asking, uh, does anyone have Carvin's autograph? So if you don't know, Carvin's had a couple of cards actually released of him in two different products. And I'm going to show you one that he gave to me, actually. Um, this is this is his Allen and Ginter card right here that he uh, signed for me a, a few years ago, Carvin. Want to yeah. thank you for that. What uh, what was what were the other what was the other card that you had of you and who? I don't, think it, was, it? I don't think it was another card. It was just only that oh, card. Yeah, it's the only thing that I worked for Upper Deck and I worked for Panini, and my only autograph card comes out of a Topps product. Okay. Um, staying on the theme, Brett. Brett's got some good questions. Any consideration for game used mask card when you were uh, your time at Upper Deck or even at Panini for that matter? So the mask um, issues, I mean, we came up with a product in 0102, it was called UD Masks. Um, in fact, that was the first product to ever have the first ever autograph featured on a game used item. So, uh, you know, obviously it wasn't a big hit because I never brought it back. But if you watch, if you look at 0304 and 0506, I did bring it back, it was called Scripted Swatches. So if you go to Masks, you'll see that, you know, Cujo signed on his patch. A white patch and it was Cujo autographs. I, I I remember Cujo, but there's others too. There's 0102 mask collection, and they also had the miniature replica mask uh, in every box. You know, because I you know these are some of the crazy ideas that never did well after the fact. But you know, there was a craze of you know collecting Patrick Waugh mask and Martin Brodeur mask. Um, there were some issues just with legalities. Um, one of the things that you're going to find working with the leagues is that you got to get the league. NHL and NHLPA to approve everything. And some of these ideas were not not really approved. The other thing is that the mask is not really a property of the NHL or NHLPA. It's a property of the goalie, and they also have a written contract with the artist. So you would have to go out and get artist rights and all that, and, and it becomes a, kind of a cluster. Uh, one of the masks that we tried to, try to do was Olaf Kozik's mask. Uh, and I believe Oleg Kozik and the, the other uh, Roman, is it Roman Turek? Is that his name? The goalie? Yeah. yeah. Right? So those two guys, so Olaf Kozik had Godzilla on it. Yeah. And, and Roman Turek had Eddie from uh, Iron Maiden. So sure. you wouldn't, so realistically for us to even do those masks, you would have to get the rights from Iron Maiden and the rights from Toei that owns Godzilla. And then a lot, a lot of these other, other, other masks have like, you know, retired players, deceased players, you would have to go get the estate. The reason why the artist can do that, if it's a one-on-one, considering it's a painting or a drawing, like an original piece of art, you don't have to get rights. 
But once you start monetizing, it's called the stream of commerce. You have to get rights. They own, you know, um, right. that the royalty. Yeah, there, there's there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that the the general collector is just unaware of. And I see it all the time online. People are saying, why don't they do this? Why don't they do that? They're doing this. They're doing that. But if you if you don't really understand the, the behind the scenes logistics and legalities, you're never going to come up with the with the answer for that. And then you're just going to be complaining about it. But there's often reasons for all these things that collectors have questions for. Um, I certainly uh, agree with that. I want to I want to touch on uh, Davey's question here because it, it, it leads to another question. You know, he's saying he wishes Hardware Heroes and Titles would come back. What, what do you think happened to those specific uh, insert sets? And why do some insert sets appear for a few years and then go away for forever or for several years? Well, I, I mean, I can't speak upon that because I think I left Upper Deck by a time when Titleist and Hardware, I, I believe I always updated that those two sets. And it was always like, we never repeated it. We just updated so new guys up one. Uh, and and it, it, it's a good idea for you to ask Upper Deck these days to say, hey, maybe one of the ideas that can you bring some of these ideas back, you know, because all it was was a picture of a trophy and the player and, you know, number to the times he won it. Um, and maybe they're waiting for some time to pass to to have a much more comprehensive set. Because right now you're talking about like four years, five years, there may not be a bunch of players that you may collect. Um, so this way, you know, they get Connor McDavid win like four or five. Because obviously, if he wins one, you don't want to do it one because you, you can't update it. So you want to almost kind of wait till he's almost finished his career to see how many times he wins it um, to have that opportunity, right? So, you know, you, you have to look at the player. Then you have to look at the contract. Is there a contract that Upper Deck has with the player? Then on top of it, does that player even sell well? You know, you wouldn't want an Anton Vermette titleist because he won – a championship with a team or something like that and so sure. that's that type of you know you got you got to so you got to evaluate three things you got to evaluate you know when you want to do it for that player or maybe at the end of that player's career does he have collectability and do you have a an autograph contract with it cool okay so let's go to barry's first question now carvin we are going to get to your time at panini and barry's question i mean it may be seen as somewhat controversial but uh, you know answer it the best you can if there's anything you, you just don't want to speak to because you know you're no longer with the, with with uh, Upper Deck or Panini, no pressure to, but uh, give it a shot if you can. Okay, so, so he's, he's referring to the stuff that's game used and and it's, it wasn't game used, because I know Barry knows his jerseys and all that, and I think it came up sometimes. So there's there's ways of acquiring game used jerseys, right? There's ways that you can acquire it through Migrate, um, websites, NHL.com, um, the games, like the some of the All-Star games, and some of the jerseys also comes from like marketing deals where you, you spend a lot amount of money uh, on on advertising, sampling cards, and then you may get back some jerseys. So it could have been one of those where we got jerseys back, and you know we went through it. They look authentic to us, but then obviously it's to someone like Barry that knows the Colorado Avalanche jerseys, they're like, "Hey, something's wrong. This color's off on the thread, or or that nature." So obviously it's a it's a mistake. Um, there are times where we got game used jerseys, you know, at, whether it's Panini or Upper Deck. Um, and they were like, oh, these are game used. Well, you can tell they weren't washed. And we all know how much hockey jerseys stink. So we just sent them right back. You know, if there's any inclination, if there's any doubt, we would we would definitely identify it. So if that could be a case. There's, there's times where the wrong jersey patches go into the patch card. Um, and I think Jeremy has gone on a tour of the people that build the jersey cards. They don't even see the front of the card. 
So they just build the jersey cards, and then, and then you, that's why you see that it, they, they say, "Hey, put this jersey here." Just your focus is one, two, three, four, five, and you put one, two, three, four, five jersey patches in there. And you know, there's there's a lot of human errors that that can happen. I won't say a lot. There's human errors that could happen. Um, there's going to be errors. There's going to be mistakes. Um, the guy that bought the jersey might not have saw it as it not being game used. So you know, I, unfortunately, I think the collectors are some of our best our best uh detective yeah yeah you, you guys you guys if you guys are working in in quality control then there wouldn't be any issues right so yeah. one note that you know i think chris Barr and working with chris Barr kind of told me and gave me huge confidence boost afterwards now he this player is no longer in the league was uh, he's a mike richards fan uh, back in the day he, he collected everything mike richards um so and it was interesting because he told me he said that mike richards if you look at all his shields, they're cut. The corner of all his shields are cut. And he actually asked Mike Richards, he goes, why do you cut your shield? Do you cut your shield? And he goes, yes, because when he plays, that part of the shield is near the neck. It actually kind of aggravates him. So he cuts that shield piece off. So and I go, well, have you seen any shields that was a game worn that didn't have that cut piece? He said, no. He said all of them had the cut piece. So, yeah. you know, and we all know Chris Barr is a huge detective when it comes to this stuff. So. You know, sure. and he told me in confidence, he goes, no, he has never seen one. That so, so on that, I mean, Upper Deck, Panini, the, the big card companies, they go through a lot of game-worn jerseys, obviously. Some some are going to get through, some are going to get passed along the chain of custody from player to card company. Something right. could go awry. Um, it, do you think this is a problem? Do you think that there's a, a large percentage of, of non, non-authentic jerseys or pieces of memorabilia that are being inserted into cards and being claimed to be actually authentic? Or do you think it's not a, a like even a percentage wise, is it is it less than 1% of jerseys that, that may not, that might make it through that aren't authentic or is it a bigger number? No, I think, I think it's a lot less than that. You know, yeah. it's, it, I, I mean, the one, I, I remember that story that Barry had mentioned to me back in the day. And, you know, I, I believe it was the, the shoulder patches of the avalanche. I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Barry, if there's, you've seen other cases of it, but, I think that was the one time that we that he alluded to back then. Sure. Okay. So Barry Barry has a part two, which I think is a really interesting question. Also, why won't Upper Deck or others date or give a specific season timeline image of where the memorabilia comes from on the card back to fully verify the authenticity, or at least to to even and and for me as a collector, I would I would appreciate that just to give me a, a closer connection to the game and the player. Can you speak to why we don't see that uh, on a regular basis in the hobby? Well, even for me, I mean, everyone asked me, you know, I know there's one time back in the day, I think Topps actually had a picture of the jersey. Yeah. Uh, and they said, this is from this jersey, which is probably from this game. So what's interesting is that, you know, when you when you talk to, like, the autograph um, guys that secure all the, auto, uh, sorry, all the memorabilia, they even say, look, if it's photo matched, they're charging a ton more for it. So especially with the moment or whatever, but as soon as it's photo match, because the memorabilia collectors will pay four to five times what Upper Deck would pay. Right. So so does it make sense? Once again, like I told, like I said earlier, we have a margin to hit. So if we're paying two thousand dollars for a jersey and we can give you, you know, an autograph and two jersey cards per box, and I say, well, we got to get a photo match and we have this, so we'll give you, you know, two jersey cards versus one autograph and two jersey cards. People are going to say, well, I'd rather have the autograph and two jersey cards. Sure. Right? Because you're talking about a small piece of a jersey card, which probably won't even have the piece of, 
like the the nick or the mark or the the stick mark tape mark whatever on the jersey that shows you that's from this game right and, and to be honest barry i mean you just pointed out where it's an unauthentic piece of memorabilia on a game used card and now you're asking for a timeline and image which might not even match or it's hard to right it's very hard to find what yeah. about and in producing the card carbon i mean if all of a sudden now you have you have to mix up the backs of the cards to to show this hat is it an expensive is it, it is. expensive process to to add a, a really unique back to every card in the set yes it, it is it is more of a process and it's there's also more room for error so yeah. we're talking about, you know it, it was like 0.2 percent of that error of that happening on the one time only off this, this something like this could happen you know oh it's the wrong color jersey well, why'd you do that? You know, it would have to be the only time you could really do it is to take the jersey that you just got, you know what game it was in, and you cut it up for that one time. But you know what collectors would say? If you could do it for me one time, why can't you do it all the time? Right. And yeah. A big can of worms and and you can't you can't fully authenticate it. I mean, I talked to other people about doing that in the past and they just said, Yeah, that was a nightmare because there's so many questions that come out of it afterwards. So sure. So right. I mean, a lot of times if you're doing a regular jersey card in Upper Deck One, you need three jerseys. You can't even use the timeline and verifying which one. And it could be a mixture of like, you know, five five um, jerseys or six jerseys that are just, you know, the last remnants of the jerseys. Right. right. Let's put it this way: when you buy your beef, you can't even tell that your ground beef is coming from one cow. So you're expecting us to produce a jersey card coming. Up. <laughs> I've never heard that analogy before when it comes to cards, but I think that's a great one. Okay, Carbon. Thank you for that. Thank you. Very great questions. And thank you, Carbon, for really taking those on. I know that couldn't, those couldn't be easy to really get into. But I like this question here from Christopher West. Uh, switching directions, what are your thoughts on the inundation of one of ones in the hobby? And with that, I'm going to add my own piece, my own piece of the question, the printing plates and how they are one of ones. Just when you're talking about inundation of one of ones and printing plates, are they one of ones in your mind? I'll let you, I'll let you take that one on. Well, one of one is it's a one of one. Right. And, you know, that's like saying patch cards, right? There's so many patch cards. And, you know, in the end, the consumer speaks its mind. The consumer decides what they want to collect. So if you if you want to collect, if you want to be a, a, a PC, of a, you want to do a PC of a player, you're going to decide if you want to collect all the different plate cards or not. I think some of the plate cards are cool. I think some of them are very bland because you don't even see the player. You don't see the image, the colors, right? Um, it, but it is a one-on-one, -on -one, it's content, but, you know, we see plate cards go for three, $4 too, but then we see, you know, if it's an autograph plate card, they could go up as high as, you know, a couple hundred. Now, it's, you, you'll also notice that the plate cards aren't the ones that are going for, you know, the 10, 15, 20, $30,000 a card. Um, and, and really you just got to look at it as I like the card, I'm going to collect it. And for a guy's building product, you know, that's a sound bite, a one-on-one per box or a one-on-one in every case. That's a sound bite to them to, to kind of a lure, right? To hit that one-on-one. -on -one. But realistically, you know, it's all about the aesthetics of the card. There could be a thousand of that card and you can't find it. It's, number one, it's the aesthetics. You like the look of it. And number two, let's not worry about how many there are. It's all about supply and demand. I mean, we're looking at all, all the Michael Jordan Fleer cards. There's tons of those Dunkin' Donuts, or sorry, Dunkin' Go Nuts. Uh, cards, but they're going for $1,200 now if it's a, you know, uh, a BGS 9.5 or a PSA 10, probably even higher than that. So there's, you know, it's all about what you like and what you want to collect and what other people like if you want secondary market values. 
Right. So just one more thing on that before we go to the next piece. Like, you know, it seems in many products there are there's there are lots of one of ones now. Um, you know, each parallel will have its own one of one sort of thing. And um, it almost seems like card companies pack one of ones into the product. And, and I don't you can't blame them They're, They need to add value. And it's a way to do that. Do you feel that the value or how much do you feel that the value of one of ones as a, as a concept have changed from the first introduction of them until 2020 when one of ones are, you know, all, it's, it's crazy to say, but they're almost as common as a Jersey card is now. And we remember when Jersey cards were super rare. So can you speak to that? Well, you know, I had one of the, one of the, um, and obviously at, at one time I was exactly like you guys where you're are asking the manufacturer and there was a, there was a meeting for, I believe it was, uh, for Pinnacle at the time. And it was at Grosner, I believe it was at Grosner and I was a store owner there. And I was like, when does it end? I, I said the same thing. I said, you know, now we're seeing at the time was gold embossed die cut refractors numbered out of 10 or there's 10 of them. We're going to go to one on one and that's it. Right. So obviously, you know, ideally you don't want to do this one on ones. You want to, you want to make sure that there's 10 or 15 of people. But, you know, I also feel that if it's a, if it's a logo man, it deserves to be a one on one. Yeah. And if it's a shield, it deserves to be a one on one. Um, by having more than one-on-one, you know, it's just like you're kind of sharing that experience with someone else. So I, I you know, that's just my you know, personal opinion on that. Um, I don't believe I've ever made a, a logo man under my products that's more than numbered out of one or signed logo mans or, or that nature. So I know they out there. So, but I mean, you know what? That you can also say more than merrier, a few more happier collectors, right? That's just yeah. my my preference. So one on ones are needed. Um, are there too many? You can say that, but then if you take away a bunch of one on ones, everyone's like, "Hey, where's my one on one?" They all, then, you know, it comes down to you also need people to open the product, and they want the one on ones, right? So whether it's a parallel, it's not a parallel. Um, you know, that's that's just to each his own. So if you like it, you like that one on one, then buy it. If you have to pay more for it, that's just a one on one now. So that's that's how I would say it's basically buyer the consumer makes the decision on that. Yeah, no, for sure. I have a trick question for you. Can you ever do a print run less than one? I'm well, kidding. You could. You could. You can do half a card, and you have to find the other half of the card, right? You'll, okay. you'll do right? You can. So you can. So you can, like, for example, like uh, some of the sketch cards that you're doing, they would have a, you know, like maybe nine. Because a sheet would be nine, then do you do a whole entire mural? So you would have to take get all nine of the one-on-ones to combine to get that one true one-on-one. Right. So you have that. Okay, let's let's go to Stefan's question here. Not card related, any awesome Gordy House stories that you could tell us from your time, uh, maybe sitting down and getting him to autograph cards for Upper Deck or Panini? I met Gordy Pop, I don't know. I, I saw him in Dallas. I saw him in Minnesota. I, I saw him in, uh, in Toronto. I mean, I, I, I have lots of good stories uh, about Gordy. I, I, truly believe that he's probably a legend in his own right in terms of treating people uh always the one thing that i will say about gordy is that when he speaks like he's, he's very strong even at the age of 80 something he, he had a very firm handshake like just break the bones in my hand uh but he's always but he always talks so soft and half the time i'm just nodding yes and then you know i'm nodding yes and he's like wait a second i was asking you a question i'm like oh <laughs> Sorry, because I couldn't hear him. He was just so soft-spoken. Oh, really? uh, 
he was he was just great you know elbows always elbowing people we have pictures of him elbowing us uh the one time i do remember and i believe this is back in 2007 in dallas uh, we had him at the event the fan fest event uh as upper deck and what happened was that uh, there was a there was a i think, I think it's about 10 or 12 years old and they kept on coming back and getting more and more autographs from gordy and we were saying hey you can't come back and he was getting kind of rude and and then finally gordy grabbed a hold of his shoulder like uh, he was he was still asking for gordy on the way out for autographs like pucks and gordy just grabbed a hold of his shoulder he goes you know what he goes i love having kids that are fans and all that but you are just rude you're rude he goes yeah. you should never you should treat people with respect don't push people out of the way right wait your time have respect and then any athlete will make sure they'll have time for you oh. and so he's, he's a class act i i truly miss gordy and a, and a lesson well learned by that youngster for sure a uh, good question here from Mike Davis. Uh, did you ever consider getting the league to sticker the swatch? This goes back to the authenticity piece, like Tops has done the past few years in certain products. Well, what can you? What, what do you know about that, Carvin? Well, I believe it's. Uh, I see it in the Bowman. So the one thing about I believe Tops, they only use game used. They don't use anything that's photo shoot uh, in terms of baseball, and that's more. I, I believe it's a league thing. So. Um, you know, I, I don't know the whole process of stickering the swatch. I know I have some cards with the 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 logo, MLB logo on on the swatch. So, but the one thing of for Panini, I mean, if you look at the Panini cards on the back of the jersey, they actually have a sticker that says the name of the number of the jersey that they identify in, in at their inventory, and they also have the name of the player on the back. So, it's uh, if you if you take a light through any Panini jersey cards, you shine through the card, you'll see that code in there was that something that upper deck ever looked at doing when you were with upper deck no i don't i don't i don't believe so i think the only thing we did was that crazy job that you did trying to um do a database of all the the cup rookies and all the all the looks now i know upper deck has shared with everyone you know for the Connor mcdavid all 99 of the the rookie auto patches and you know that's something that can be discussed i did not really i'm not i'm not part of the discussion anymore on how to yeah how to protect the the patches and all that so the the integrity of the patches sure right all right well listen we kind of we kind of got sidetracked with a lot of great questions i want to thank everybody for sending those over um let's we talked about your time at upper deck what took you from upper deck to panini and uh tell us a bit about your time at panini sure um well um you know i, I know there's a lot of rumors out there when you know upper deck when i left upper deck and everyone thought you know some people said oh you got laid off he, you know, just pissed off that they were losing licenses. That was further from the truth. It, it comes down to it. And if any of you guys know me, I mean, I talk to you guys on a regular basis. I'll talk to you. I'll make time for you in the evenings. I always gave 110% to the hobby, um, you know, whether it's for the company that I work for or for the hobby or building products or even I had to work for customer service for a while just to get upper deck customer service back in, in gear when we had some changeover in staff. So working all those hours and working on the weekends kind of burnt me out. So when the the layoffs were happening back in 2010, and of course the recession, all that, um, I I basically said I want I wanted to be laid off or I wanted to quit because I needed some time for myself just to get some balance in my life. In my life. I wanted to do some traveling. I never take any holidays. Um, so I so I managed to do that. So I lived a, a year away. I was living um, half the time in China, in Shanghai, which is a great city. Um, 
and then after that, I, I just, you know, I talked to Panini and uh, the CEO and basically said, you know, I want you to come back and, and work for us. And, you know, and, and I always liked Dallas as a, as a city when I visited. So I said, and, you know, I lived in California. So I, I said I was a Dodgers and Lakers fan. And the other team I was, was, I was a Cowboys fan. So I was like, okay, well, why not? Let's give it a try. So, you know, despite having the house in California, I decided to rent an apartment and give it a shot at Panini. And once again, I was given, you know, to work on basketball and hockey. So, so it was a, it was a, it was a good mix and, uh, you know, just one, once again, hone my skills and had a team that, that was a great team to work with. You know, they, they're now doing great stuff on, on basketball. Now, I uh, worked on football before I left Panini in 2014. Uh, so I worked on football and, you know, created some great brands and all that over there too. And, you know, had some influence, but the, the one thing about Panini versus Upper Deck is that I had less of the actual building of brands at Panini than I did at Upper Deck. So Upper Deck was just like, you know, just just head down and, and do make products and, you know, come up with what we call the strategic brief or the outlines um, and then go to engineering meetings, and all that. At Panini, I was more of guiding the group. So it was a, it was a fun time. So and then, I, and then I focused on mostly hockey versus basketball after a year and a bit in. But um, I think part of the reason why I left was, number one, I got married and my wife was not a big fan of Dallas. So that didn't help. And then, you know, I still had my own place. It wasn't like I didn't have a, a place in, in San Diego and San Diego was just a great place to live. So Is that where you are now? Are you in San Diego? I'm in San Diego now. Yeah, but I'm everywhere. If it wasn't for the what's going on right now. I'd probably be in Shanghai or traveling all over Asia. So, I mean, that's that's the job that I have now. Um, so, so I mean, it's, it's super interesting. You know, we started out, you, you were a collector as a kid. You had experiences with your father. Your folks had a card shop. You worked for Upper Deck. You worked for Panini. Now you work for you work for GTS Distribution. You're a direct. What, what's your title with GTS right now? Uh, director of business. Is is GTS? Uh, I mean, up in Canada, we're not as familiar, but I, I do go to the national. I know I have a lot of American friends in the hobby. What uh, what is what what is GTS in a, in a few words? And um, and would it be for GTS that you would be traveling all over Asia right now? Yeah, so GTS. Uh, when I got hired, at GTS, it's a, it's basically a distributor. Um, they're one of, one of the U.S.'s biggest distributors for you know Magic, Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh, uh, and then of course sports cards, uh, Topps. You know, I don't think we have, we don't have any. There's not a manufacturer we don't have. Um, and so as part of the job, one of the things was you know when I when I left Panini, was online breaker was an initiative. Like online breaking was a huge you know, platform that everyone was going towards. So, so I I went to work for GTS and help expand the knowledge of our sales guys and everyone and, and how to approach and work with breakers, uh, online breakers. So that was the first element. And then there was always like the few years later, hopefully we can look at Asia. And as we know, Asia is growing really strong with primarily with basketball. Uh, they also are, are heavily into soccer and non-sport too as well. So. So it's a it's a perfect mix now, and the fact that I'm Chinese, I lived in Shanghai for a while, so I understand the the true you know Chinese culture. Not all the way that I'm Chinese. I'm really American or Canadian Chinese. Uh, so so it comes down to, but I at least understand the culture a lot better than an average person in the U.S. or or in Canada. I also you know I spoke Cantonese, which is the language in Hong Kong, 
my Mandarin was pretty poor, but now it's gotten a lot better. So I can communicate and I, I start writing in Chinese with people. And so, so it's, uh, it's, you know, GTS has that conduit for, for Asia now with, with my knowledge there. So, sure. So you're, you know what, I mean, we're mostly talking about hockey and basketball here, which, which is or the two that I'm interested in. So I don't mind talking about them. You know, I hear a lot of the time that basketball is so much more valuable than all the other sports on just, you know, the, the stars and the big cards. Um, maybe you can shed some insight to this that really nobody else probably could. You know, is it true that basketball is so hot and a lot of the market is driven by the Asian customer? And if so, can you ever see those people taking an interest in hockey where we could see some sort of growth in the hockey market that would i can't say mirror the basketball uh values and and the the rate at which they they increase and where they've gotten to but can you see can you see the hockey market ever catching on in asia and and the hobby seeing a little bit of a boost from that well i think if, if you're talking about asia exclusively asia like china right um the nba went no leaps and bounds ahead of everyone else they were like 40 was it they've been there for almost 30 years now or th over 30 years now in asia so they had offices so they're way ahead of the curve on everyone else um hockey i think has an opportunity because number one unlike baseball and football those sports are really hard for a non-american to understand how how the rules and how to play the game and what makes them a great player but on hockey you have that opportunity because you really just have two nets you have ice and china you know 70 percent of china actually gets snow so you have that opportunity. It's really up to the league to start putting in a lot of marketing dollars, to having an office there. Uh, and then, you know, I know BioSteel did some tours with Connor McDavid into China. Um, they, they brought some other players, but, you know, you can't just do it one year and then not do it again. So, and unfortunately, the, the one thing that's, that's not there for hockey, like there is for basketball, is that you have Nike and you have MJ selling the shoes and there's a lot of sneakerheads in China. You don't have that opportunity. Like skates are not a normal, you know, everyday use item. So, uh, or skates. so that's the that's the other element is that the equipment does not ring well with the casual person. It's not a lifestyle. Hockey is not a lifestyle in, in terms of the shoes. Basketball shoes are a lifestyle item. Fair enough. Do you think that the the meteoric rise in the value of basketball is it is there a direct correlation to the Asian collector? Are the Asian collectors driving the basketball values as much as I think they are, or is it investors coming into the hobby in the last few years? What's driving the value of the basketball card market um, aside from the star the star potential of these players in in the United States? Well, first of all, a lot of the collectors are also Asian that are from the U.S. Right, for basketball. It, you'll, you'll see that in terms of all four sports, there's more probably Asian Americans that collect basketball than any other sport. Um, and, you know, maybe it's because we play basketball at a young age versus, you know, and basketball is easier. You don't need to know, know how to skate. Um, and, and a lot of the Asians, you know, may start it in their teens. There's one thing about Asian, you know, and I don't, I don't want to stereotype, but I mean, a lot of Asians are really you gotta study you know we were brought up you know you gotta study you gotta do well in school you know we want you to be a doctor or a lawyer or or an accountant you know those type of jobs um so i guess i was a, kind of a black sheep in my family because i didn't become any of those um but but anyways the it, it comes down to you know basketball a lot of asians play basketball whether you're filipino whether you're chinese 
uh, Koreans, a lot, of, a lot of Asians, and it's easy. You can find a court anywhere. You don't have to join a league. You don't have to join a baseball league or a, um, a hockey league. So the, number one, that sport already appeals to Asian Americans, but also the, the impact it has. Obviously, the pricing, um, the demand on cards, the Asian market has a lot to do with it. But as of late, I would say the, probably the biggest group of people are people like sneakerheads. Um, Sneakerheads, uh, other even other people that collect, you know, collectibles outside of trading cards have all jumped in. You're seeing a new, you know, right now I call myself Generation X, which is, you know, you're looking at about 45 to 60 is Generation X. You know, we're collecting more because, you know, our, well, not you and I, but other people have their kids going to college, and you know, they they've already has an empty nest, so they have a little bit of extra income, disposable income to go back to what you enjoy. You know, as as collectors, if you if you notice. Everyone that's a collector always collects something they used to collect as a kid or they used to enjoy as a kid. So, so we enjoy cards, so we go back to cards. But there's also when you go to the national, you're seeing a lot of twenty-somethings. You're seeing some of the millennials are now collecting cards, and when you talk to them, a lot of them used to deal in sneakers. Uh, and part of the reason is that now that Nike has their own app and all that, that's very tough for them to get the sneakers that they want. So the you know the two thousand dollar pair of sneakers. Uh, it's on model. Do you use bots? But that's another story. We can talk about that another time. But I think there's an influx of a lot of influencers, YouTube influencers, these uh, these other people saying, hey, trading cards is a great investment. Um, it's kind of eerie because back in the early 90s, it was the same thing. Why bet on the stock market? You should be buying Mario Lemieux rookies. You should be buying Wayne Gretzky rookies. And they appreciate how much in the last few years. So there's, there's almost like it's a repeat cycle. And it's kind of scary when I when I look at that because we all know what happened last time, right? But but everything's different though. There's not like twenty thousand or fifty thousand cases of upper deck product, and there's you know everything's limited and you know it's chromium for chromium and prism versus back then you know Okichi hockey. So uh, definitely a different different uh, environment, different years, different timing. Yeah, back then there were maybe four or six different brands for the whole year, you know, and now it's. Uh... Dozens and dozens. All right, we have a, a question here. I'm going to let you take a look at it. Um, it's Wayne's question where he's asking about Panini and the hockey license. Sorry about that. He says, how much of, of Panini not getting the hockey license after 13-14 was, was on Panini? And how much was them not wanting it? And how much was the NHL wanting to be in a single partner relationship? Is this something that you can speak to? Were you, uh, were you involved at the time? Um, I was involved in terms of building products. I was involved with building portfolios. I really don't know the reasoning behind it. Um, I was not part of those discussions. And it, it comes down to it. I mean, look, at there's pros and cons for, for every league to work with one partner or have multiple partners. You know, for collectors, you always want to have multiple collectors, I mean, multiple, part, multiple licensees because you feel like there's competition in the marketplace, and, which is fair. And you, you want people to provide better you know, competition, newer ideas, and I, and I get that. But also on the other side, you know, because I've been on both sides, right? So, you know, being a single licensee makes a lot of sense because I don't want to spend, you know, say, let's say the minimum spend for marketing, like TV commercials and let's say all kinds of sampling cards and all that. So why would I do it if the net result is that all that, all that money goes towards a competitor? If I'm the single person, if I'm the single licensee, I know that the effort that I that, that company puts into developing the marketplace, it comes back to that company. So they'll they'll be more committed. Right. Also, you know, we we hear it all the time. Like 
when you have two different companies, you have, oh, why are you giving them this 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 benefit? Why are you doing that for that? Meanwhile, it might not be the truth, right? It's all hearsay. So you have all that, and the league has to deal with that. Having one partner makes it a lot easier. Say, hey, these are the rules. You don't follow it. You're not allowed. These are the rules. You follow it. You're, you're all good. So you don't have that constantly bickering between the two licensees. So I think um, in terms of keeping their their people, uh, less people involved and not having to micromanage the different licensees, you're seeing a lot more of this exclusivity, not just in trading cards, you're seeing in jerseys now, you're seeing in you know memorabilia, like Fanatics runs everyone's website, right? That's an exclusive license, that's huge. Right. Uh, you know, basketball jerseys, Nike only, you know, football, I don't know, hockey is Adidas, right? Um, I believe baseball, was going to be Under Armour. Now it's uh, is it like Nike too as well for for baseball? They're exclusive. So you're seeing this once again. Trading cards is just one category, but we're seeing in other multiple categories the same thing happening. I think the answer is there that there's it's not, it's not just about the trading cards. There's something more to it than trading cards. You know, I see it all the time. People ask. People are always saying we need more competition, and I'd like to see three companies and each can do ten sets per year. You see all these ideas thrown out there by collectors and oftentimes it's just the fact that collectors don't understand the business of the hobby um can you ever see i mean taking what you said that it's it's really the league's preference to have a single partner if they were willing to have more than one partner could you ever see a situation that would make sense for the industry and the, or the hobby where you would have multiple licensees and each one would be restricted to a certain amount of sets or brands that they could do each year or is that going to be too restrictive and not and not generate enough revenue type of thing well, I mean, if you if you look at the the licensing back 20 years ago it was like that right it, it was like that and you know you can look at it as oh wow geez you know this this company let's say talk about upper deck upper deck had michael jordan had kobe bryant had kevin garnett these are exclusives so how do you even play the field evenly when they have the exclusives, right? And and it's easy, it's easy for us to say that Michael Jordan should be signed with all three companies, sure. but that's but that's Michael Jordan's choice. It's not the league's choice to mandate that, right? You know, it's it's up to the players whether they want to work with all three companies or whether they have to deal with the schedules and all that. There's there's all kinds of you know we're we're talking about people. If we're talking about machines building products and no one involving people, then it's easy. But when we're talking about people and personalities and dealing with people and relationships, there's a lot more at, at stake. So I think, you know, it seems like, you know, if you look at all the leagues right now, football is exclusive with Panini, baseball and MLB is exclusive with Tops, hockey is exclusive with, you know, Upper Deck, and basketball is exclusive with Panini. My best thing is that, you know, if you want to challenge these companies and say, what can you do to build products? You basically provide feedback for them and give them some, so how you feel about how they can be building products more catered to you. Usually, that's what people want: products that are more catered to you, right? So, yeah. Um, so, so it comes down to it: you you provide that feedback for people. Let's not worry about what happened, what didn't happen, what's going to happen with the licensing. Let those people figure it out. You know how it's going to happen. You know, like a lot of people don't like Justin Trudeau as your prime minister, right? Well, too bad you have them as your prime minister, so it doesn't matter for the next four years, five years. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, so, same so, thing. 
Sure. Wayne, Wayne makes a good comment here. Wayne, Wayne is a, a good buddy of mine. People tell me all the time they wish Upper Deck didn't make so many releases. And I tell them if they didn't, neither Upper Deck nor I could survive in this business with 10 hockey releases a year. I mean, I think that just speaks to what you were saying. And I got to say, I, uh, I agree. I agree with that. Uh, I mean, I'm not in the, I'm not in the card business per se. I don't have a store nor do I work for a card company, but uh, that makes good sense to me. I think it, it really uh, relates to what we've been talking about. <laughs> Let's go to Barry's question here. You live in California and Texas, in and out burger or Whataburger? Tough question, but what do you think? Well, I'll say I'll take in and out over Whataburger. Me too. Whataburger, Whataburger does have something. They make their own ketchup and they have this spicy ketchup, which is pretty impressive. So there you go. All right. Good stuff. Good stuff. I, I love that question, Barry. Thanks. Um, okay, great. Well, hey, we've got we've covered quite a bit here. We tomorrow evening um espn and uh, netflix are debuting the 10-part miniseries the last dance which is going to feature uh the chicago bulls run to the championship in uh 1997 against utah jazz and the basketball card market right now if anyone's watching this market on completed listing sales on ebay cards are going ridiculous you wouldn't think that there was an economic crisis going on right now what I guess I have two questions here, Carbon. Number one, why do you think that cards are going nuts right now? Like in, in, an, in an economic crisis, cards are seemingly immune to this. Can you speak to that? And I'll come to my second question after. Sure. Well, as especially for Generation X, I mean, I can speak for myself. You know, we lived through the years of Michael Jordan. I mean, everyone knows that that was the iconic game where he was sick, he had the stomach flu, and he put that shot against Byron Russell, you know, doing the crossover and back and then hitting that throwing shot. And I think there, there's anything that you can associate with is that trading cards brings back that memory. Now, we can say magazines can, we can say papers can, but number one, they're hard to store, right? Yeah. Trading cards are very simple. It's, it's a two and a half by three and a half. You can put it in a shoebox. And, you know, there was a, there was actually um, some of the uh, conferences I went to uh, the last few years. And, and one of the guys that was there was Ken Reed at the Upper Deck Conference, mm -hmm. uh, sports anchor, uh, anchor for Sportsnet, right? And he just said that, you know, he started telling stories about like the Bob McGill photo from 91, 92 with the big mullet and the mean look and all that. And, you know, so, so he was telling these stories and I go, like, same thing. You buy a Jordan card, you see it. It brings you memories, fond memories, and you have stories that you can tell about where were you that day when Michael Jordan hit that shot? Or where were you that day when Sidney Crosby scored the golden goal in Vancouver? Right. So those are the type of things that, you know, like we watched it in um, that movie with Matt Damon, what was it, uh, Good Will Hunting, right? Like where were you during that Carlton Fisk home run when he was beckoning for that home run? And that's the same thing. It's, it's you know, that movie actually, tells a lot about collect to some degree is some sort of the, the philosophy of collecting. Um, same thing here. I mean, the reason why we collect is it brings back our childhood memories. And that's why some people collect vintage, but then even the the motion of collecting new cards is something that we are used to. So a lot of people still like their boxes, they like the nine pocket sheets. Um, it's one of the reasons why we like vertical cards better than horizontal cards. Yeah. Because so, it's our natural instinct. So, you know, with, with we are in this crisis, the COVID-19 crisis. We're in the middle of it right now. We are, we, are, we are living through it as we speak, and it's one of the reasons why we're even talking right now, live streaming on the internet. Um, 
you know, cards have continued to go up in value. Great records are being broken all the time. I just noticed today there were a whole bunch of awesome hockey cards listed on eBay for sale uh, and their bids are already coming in crazy. Same with basketball cards. Um, you know, it, it seems to me like this hobby is immune to the ebbs and flows of the economy. Um, and a lot of people don't expect that. You, you now layer on the effect of this documentary that's coming up right away here. It's a 10 part series. I think they're doing two episodes per week on Sundays. And I wonder is the reason why we're seeing the, the increase in values of basketball cards, is it because people are bored and they have nothing else to spend their money on? Or is it because they're getting all hyped up and excited for some new sport content that being the last dance? Or is it a combination of the two? And any insights into that? I think, I think that's a combination of, of everything going on. I mean, one, people are stay at home. So, you know, you're, you're kind of going stir crazy and, and you're actually spending less money right now. So, so people that do have a job and, and have some disposable income, they can at least, you know, I can't go to the mall. I'm no, I don't even need to get gas because I'm staying at home now. So, you know, so it comes down to uh, I'm spending less money. So why not buy some cards, right? Uh, second of all, I mean, you know, are they going into online breaks? A lot of people are doing more of that. Uh, it's, it's, it's number one, it's the stay at home. The second of all, what was one of our release? What, what is one of the release for everyone from the day to day from their job and the reality was sports? Well, there is no sports on TV. So the only sports that you're getting is watching eBay. It's kind of a sport itself to be the last one. Yeah. Right? Watching online breaks. Um, so, so that's your sports entertainment. Um, and even for that matter, when you're watching sports, it's kind of like I was watching WrestleMania highlights. I was watching like even the comedians. It's like no one's laughing. No one's. It's like it's kind of a new reality that you know sports isn't going to be the same without a crowd there. Like you know, you, you know, when you're watching WrestleMania with 120,000 people, and every time they you know they count the one, two, the whole entire crowd is counting. Right now, it's just like it's like watching Ultimate Fighter. Um, yeah. With wrestling, right? That's what it was. That's what it felt like—just a referee and two wrestlers. And it's it's a, it's it's the new reality, unfortunately. So yeah. not so exciting. They might not even want to do sports, but you know what? With those cards, those cards have value. I can speculate. I like looking at it. You know, it's like buying. A, it's like guys that are uh, sports car car, not cards collectors. Like a guy like Stephen Ho. If you remember meeting Stephen, right? Yeah. He, he collects Porsches, right? And what do you say? You said he buy a Porsche, drive it for a year, and he sells it off. So for that time, he gets he gets to live that experience of the Porsche. And same thing for cards. I can own it for a, a year, and I can sell it off and get my money back. And you know, I had it at least. Yeah, I like Andy's comment. Andy, glad was super super happy to be able to deliver some sports content right now, especially for you know collector focus. This is a it's a lot of fun. Um, yeah, no, I hear you. You know, you talk about all this talk about uh, you know. Um, sporting events without fans in this in the crowd you know my wife watches ellen and so i'm caught watching ellen sometimes and ellen's doing her show at her house and she's doing it with uh, that twitch guy in his house and her producer in the back and it's not nearly as funny or as inter interesting without that live audience and or a laugh track i like i'm like honey this this isn't even good tv like i can't believe she's on but you know i i, I wonder how that would go with sports i i don't know like i don't know that it will, will i think people well. want to see it i think people want to see it i mean I mean, I, I was just went on to, I think ESPN today, and they were showing FIFA players, like you know, world world stars, soccer players playing FIFA online, right? Just like they were showing the basketball players playing um, NBA two, was it uh, twenty BK or whatever it's, it's called, the 
the Take Two uh, company. So, I'm throwing. A, I just threw Brett's comment on here because I think it's really insightful. He says this is a doc series unlike any other. We've not heard from Jordan like this ever. So many eyeballs. People want to be a part of it. Yeah, I think that's it's a great point, Brett. And um, I think that with the in the absence of so many other events going on right now, from concerts to the the baseball. Um, you know, of course, basketball and hockey, and, and now with the fact that football could not even start on time and, you know, there's nowhere to go. I think, yeah, people are hungry and thirsty for sport content. And um, and when you, when you couple that with the collector mentality and the beauty of cards and how much us collectors love these things for whatever reason we do, I think it's just uh, the perfect storm for what we're seeing in the marketplace right now. Um, well, if you, want, if you want a good documentary, Go watch uh, Alexander the Great versus Sydney the Kid. That was in 2008, and yours truly was actually being interviewed as part of it. That's one of the people on that uh, documentary. It was done by uh, CTV, but it was broadcast on TSN multiple times. It was right before the Olympics, yeah. so so it was a it was an interesting. It was like one of my last things I did at Upper Deck. I think that that interview was, but it was pretty cool. So so if you want to go watch some content there, um, but it leads up, so it doesn't show you the golden goal or any of that stuff, but. You know, we did a scan of all the Crosby cards that we had to get from collectors, and um, so we did we did a few things. So it was, it was kind of cool. And that was that was early on in their careers too. So um, for sure, uh, I don't know who this is, but uh, I like the question, so I'm going to put it on there. I do I do want you know if you want to ask questions and you want us to address them while we're live here, guys, you need to go to uh, I'm going to put it up one more time for you. Um, you need to go to streamyard.com slash Facebook, click the big blue button that will allow us to better interact with you live viewers. So please go and do that. I'd really appreciate that. Also guys, we'll throw this up again. You can follow Carbon on Instagram at Carbon15 and Twitter at Carbon C. Carbon, where are you more active, Twitter or Instagram? I'm not gonna go towards more Instagram, I think. Um, so I'll probably show stuff that I collect or you know, if I find some, some of the stuff, like I found some, uh, business cards, I found some unpublished cards. I mean, that, you know, like for example, like a lot of people don't know that, uh, let's try to find, I just showed it to you, didn't I? Uh, like these are our business cards back at Upper Deck. So you have the Crosby, I have the original one when uh, Griffey was a different pose. Uh, that was the old Upper Deck logo. You got the fist pump, Tiger Woods. Yeah, that's awesome. Right, um, where's the one I showed you earlier though? Did I just misplace it already? See, I'm not good with, organization here's my one and only id card when i actually wait a lot more so <laughs> sorry just plug in my my that's my instagram account everybody if you want to follow me on there that'd be awesome and please if you're still watching guys please do subscribe to the youtube channel it's called sports cards live and uh i just want to get this the subscriber count up so we can get the unique url for the channel i'd really appreciate that if you don't mind All right. Um, here's, uh, here's one that a lot of people didn't know was a spokesperson it was Annika Sorenstam, right? Are so some of these are some of these rarer than others, Carvin? Of course, it's uh, like if they're only with us for a year, they'd had a business card and that was it. And then, obviously, the one when I first joined, Beckham was a spokesperson for for Upper Deck uh, when we had the Manchester United uh, license or when Upper Deck had it. I always say we because you know what Panini and, and and Upper Deck. I would, I would just always say we. This, all right, let's team. let's jump into this question here. It's another one from Brett. Any other? Uh, I think he's just looking for more content. Any other docs that you've enjoyed that you can point us to? 
it has to be sports related or it has to be any docs? Let's stick to sports. Let's stick to sports. Yeah. Huh. If not, we'll move on. If nothing comes to mind. Uh, you know, obviously the the one, I don't know, if, I'm sure like people like Wayne is in here and he probably watched it, but the 72 series, I have the full set of the Summit series and the all that's, that went on, especially when they played their games in Russia, was amazing to watch. I mean, the team was playing pretty much playing down a player the whole entire game. Uh, there's there's also stories, of course, uh, was it with Bobby Clark slashing, um, what's his name? The... Uh, I can't remember his name now. The, the main, the main Russian player. He slashed and broke his ankle. I'm and not recruit Krutov or one of those guys. No, 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 no. I was. Uh, he had. He had his, his son played in the league or was a, one of the big prospects, but he never panned out. I'm sure Wayne knows. Um, and then there was also the uh, the Phil Esposito talk in Vancouver when he got booed. So, you know that that 72 series is probably one that I I would say was probably instrumental. Karlamov, Jason says, that's right. Yeah. Here we go. Here we go. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jason. Appreciate you jumping in with that. Um, <clears throat> what else? Uh, there was another question up here. So uh, let's go back to basketball for a second. We have this sure. question. I don't know who's asking it. I, I prefer if we did, but we'll put it up there anyway as sort of an exception. Do you prospect basketball? Who would you invest in right now? Any younger players for the uh, for the basketball crowd? Um, unfortunately, I just don't have the, cap the capital to invest into basketball players. So of note, um, basketball, you should always, depends on if you want a sure thing or if you don't, you know, you want to take a chance on some players, right? Uh, like Pasco Siakam would have been a great one to, to prospect a couple of years ago um, before they went for the championship run. And but besides, here's the jersey, or here's my t-shirt, <laughs> Raptors t-shirt. Um, but the, the other players, like, I mean, you always have to look at the number one picks. If you want a true player to invest into, a generational player that's a number one pick are usually the ones that are going to substantially go up. Now, obviously, we say that Michael Jordan wasn't the number one pick. Um, there, are, there are certain players that you have to look at, but typically the top-rated players like LeBron was number one, Connor McDavid, Sidney Crosby, they're all number one picks. So, you know, they're, they're typically the easier ones, but you're going to have to spend more money. Uh, if you want to go for dark horses, there definitely is. I mean, R.J. Barrett, number three pick this year. I mean, he's, you know, he'll always have a good following. And actually, Canadians buy a lot of cards, even on other sports. So he's one to look at if the Knicks amount to something. Um, there's other players that, you know, are pretty reasonably priced. You know, a guy that, you know, who I thought was a great player that hasn't played well is Dan Smith Jr. I mean, he has the potential to be back to where he was with Dallas or even better. So um, I think it, it all depends on how much you want to spend. But just, once again, collect guys that you want to collect first and foremost so you get the enjoyment of that. And if they prosper, that's great. Um, a lot of guys would prospect the teams they follow, so more than anyone else. Sure. We just have someone's asking, what do I have to do to ask a question? You just got to go to streamyard.com slash Facebook, please. Click on the big blue button. And that will allow you to better interact with us while we are live. It's right there for you. Have a look, streamyard.com slash Facebook. Click the blue button and you will be good to go. Thank you for that. All right. Um, here's a big question by uh, from Andy. I'm going to read it because it's too long to put on the screen. Do you feel that card companies are catering too much these days to breakers? As a retailer, I'm hearing a fair amount of feedback from card collectors 
that they're priced out of the market for a lot of stuff. The cup is a good example. Not many average Joes can buy a cup, can buy a, a pack, sorry, can buy a tin of the cup due to the cost being so high. This trend will just likely continue, don't you think? What do you think of that? Well, for, for every company, they always have a well-balanced portfolio. Doesn't matter even look at what sports, right? For example, like football has score on, on the lower end or legacy, I believe it's called legacy, right? Panini legacy is, is another one that they have. Um, and then they go all the way up to national treasures and flawless. Basketball, same thing. You got hoops, you got national treasures. Uh, upper deck one, MVP even at, a, at even a lower price point, all the way to the cup hockey. And then for uh, baseball, you have, you know, Diamond icons, definitive, all the way up to transcendent, which is twenty-three thousand dollars a box and a, an experience. But they also have tops one. They also have opening day. So to sit here and say that you're they're catering to all these different, you know, mainly the high end and all that, that's because a lot of people like the high end content. Now, out of the two sports, that's definitely a little bit more catering to set collectors is hockey and baseball. You see more set collectors in those two sports than the other other sports. Uh, the, more than football and base, basketball, but they still have to have those dollar to dollar, two dollar price points because the league actually supports that. Also of note, you know, the Walmarts and the Targets, they are the one that carry the lower price points because they can't carry a box of the cup at Walmart. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's hobby exclusives. So so they have products that are available for your, your other collectors. No, I, I get it. You know, those collectors would like to see in Tops 1 the content they see in Diamond Icons or the score they see it in national treasures football but you're not going to see that content in there um so you're it's all about the set building experience maybe they'll they'll have some you know blank backs they'll have some error cards or some variations and that's how they create some content i mean right now tops update and top series two has has a lot of people collecting it because number one they have the bat down akuna the no number flag guerrero in series two Tops update. I think Mike Trout's are going for fifteen hundred now. So even more. Okay, more. Yeah, even okay, more. more so there you go. So they they have opportunities and they have heritage, which does really well with the different color backs. So you know, and and also of note for those two sports, they have a longer history too. So that appeals to you know, the the legends are way more famous than basketball legends or or even football legends. Fair comments. Thanks a lot. All right, um, we'll throw up here. Because we were talking about docs and someone asked a question, Wayne puts up a, a suggestion for a good documentary, The Battling Bastards of Baseball, about Kurt Russell's dad owning the only independent minor league game, uh, minor league team in the US in the 70s in Portland. Fantastic, thanks Wayne for that. If anyone's interested, be sure to check that out. Um, and Roddy's here. Hello, Roddy, thank you. I hope you won your poker game. We'll put, hey, worries. <laughs> Anyone, guys, if you're watching this, you're just tuning in now, this video from at the beginning, which started an hour and 50 minutes ago, and I'm sorry it's so long, but hey, we're having a great time, will be archived on the YouTube channel for Sports Cards Live, as well as the Facebook group, also by the same name, Sports Cards Live. So please do um, subscribe to the channel. Feel free to join the Facebook group. I'll admit y'all. And uh, you can always come and watch these videos there. Start at the beginning and make your way to where you are right now if you want. Certainly want people watching and uh, absorbing this content. Um, and Roddy, you did win. a boy. I knew you could do it. Good job. Made some money at poker tonight. 
I actually missed my weekly poker, my online poker game last night as Carvin and I were uh, just kind of putting our heads together to come up with how to how to get this done tonight. So I sacrificed my poker game for for this uh, last night. All right. Well, listen. Um, <clears throat> I mean, Carvin, it's been a great discussion. Anything else that you uh, anything else you want to mention before we uh, wrap it up? No, not really. I mean, we can we can definitely have more of these. Um, we can talk about. We can dive down and talk about specific products, you know, some other questions, uh, even, you know, how we how cards are produced and understanding the four color print printing. It's all up to you guys what you want to see. So, you know, definitely give Jeremy some heads up and say, hey, you know, what, we can, you know, maybe talk about some some knowledge into you know how cards are printed, uh, what goes on uh, behind the scenes. So definitely, I mean, anytime. And also, you know, if you, if you do follow me on instagram and all that you can always hit me up to direct message me or on twitter and we can talk via there too so let me throw that up again for you if anyone's just tuning in now you can follow carbon on instagram and twitter um i'll put my own up there follow me on instagram as well please subscribe to the youtube channel join the facebook group we will do this again carbon's offer this is part one of the uh series on sports cards live hosted by myself with Carvin, also known as the Godfather, uh, the greatest Canadian export in sports cards ever to come out of our country is this guy right here, right, right there, right there, the very backwards. That's him. That's the greatest Canadian export in sports cards, right there, everybody. So be sure to uh, to check him out. Check us out. We'll we'll be back here together. Carbon, we'll get another one of these going sure. within the next couple of weeks, let's say, and um, and we'll we'll be on the lookout for good ideas for questions and then kind of how to focus that discussion. But I think we'll wrap it up, guys. Um, there's a few straggling comments. I'm going to see if there's anything that we want to address on the show here. Um, and uh, you know, thanks everybody for the compliments, Al. Appreciate that. Thank you. It's our pleasure, Carbon. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, What's this? Yes, I am after. I do want one of those original Upper Deck uh, uh, logo neon lights. Uh, so I should look into Sports Card Live neon sign. Well, we did go with that motif, uh, and you can tell why, why I did that. So um, thanks for the suggestion, uh, Roddy. All right, guys. Again, we'll wrap it up. Carbon, thank you so much for making Actually, this. Actually, that was a question I think we missed. So it was oh. uh, someone asked me who's my favorite WWE wrestler. So let me give oh. you. Let me let me give you who my WWE as a kid, watching it before WWE, it was Maple Leaf Wrestling. I used to watch, and um, it was uh, Ricky Dream, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat was my one of my favorites, especially those uh, matches against Ric Flair back in the day. Um, I think it was Intercontinental Championship or whatever it was. It was Maple Leaf Wrestling back then, and then aside from Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, uh, I would say Bret Hart just because he's Canadian. And then, of course, you know, probably the most technical, technically sound uh, wrestler of our time. And, of course, Undertaker is always, you know, great for the show, just just watching, you know, the entrance and everything. So uh, those are my favorites. Um, by the way, thank you, everyone, for showing up, and thank you for having me on the show. And definitely be safe and practice your social distancing, guys. All right, be yeah, I'll, I'll reiterate that, everybody. Thank you so much, Carvin. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in live. Thanks for all the questions, guys. This was awesome. I think we had a great show. Everyone stay safe out there. Keep your distance, and hopefully we get through this pretty quick. And that's it, everybody. Thank all you right. so much. Thank you yeah. again, Carvin.
ending 